0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, The Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal and Damon Linker of the Week. And sitting in for Linda Chavez this week is my new Bulwark colleague, Kathy Young. We're delighted to welcome Kathy and our special guest, Jonathan Rauch, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and Contributing Editor to The Atlantic. Welcome one and all. Well, regular listeners to Beg to Differ know that we on this podcast really do enjoy getting into the weeds on policy matters and pulling apart important matters of our time, giving our different perspectives on them. And unfortunately, most of what happens in American politics these days doesn't lend itself to that. Instead, we have (laughs) crazy town and the politics of performance and kicking the other guy in the teeth. Exhibit A. Ron DeSantis this week signed the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill. Actually, that's not what it is. It's the uh, Parental Rights in Education Act. But it is arguably a right-wing overreaction to a small problem. So I'm going to go first to you, Damon, and have you sketch out what this is about and what you think of the law itself, leaving aside the misrepresentations
1: of it. Oh, boy. um, What a mess. Thank you for bringing me in right at the top on that. Uh, (laughs) um, I mean, it is a bit of a mess because... I really have no idea if there is a so called problem here, like is there an issue that in Florida schools teachers are coming into like first grade and talking about transgenderism and uh how you can't define a woman and don't think that boys are boys and girls are girls I mean, if it's true that in you know kindergarten through third grade this is an issue in the state of Florida, then I guess we needed a bill to address this because I will come out, uh, you know, write out and admit that I think that sounds inappropriate to be doing that in public schools. Uh, Probably it should be discussed much later when students are approaching or entering puberty. Uh, That sounds more like it. That's usually when sex ed is done in public schools and so forth. But this law is written as if this is a major problem, and it says explicitly in the law that teachers should, are forbidden from discussing issues related to sexual orientation and gender in kindergarten through third grade. It
0: actually doesn't forbid discussion. It did in one of its earlier incarnations. They changed that. It now forbids instruction.
1: Just, okay, just all right. Instruction. Yeah. But then it also, I believe, goes, uh, the final version, I think, goes on to then say, a- I- and it needs to be age-appropriate to uh, right. students, which means that this then is a kind of stricture or limitation on what students can say to really any grade beyond. So you could, I guess someone could make a case right. that in 10th grade, you shouldn't be discussing this stuff either, and therefore it's banned then too, or restricted the <laughs> So it's really hard for me to know. I mean, a lot of the debate around the law had to do with, well, wait, is this restricting specific things that are enumerated in the law, or is it simply casting a very wide net and leaving open for uh, kind of right-wing activists to lobby for actually much greater strictures that would be allowed under its vague wording? I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not an expert in this bill itself. The thing that strikes me is that the whole point of this bill, in my Opinion, is to trap Democrats, and I don't have a great suggestion for how Democrats can avoid the trap because it's a pretty cagey one. That it is perfectly reasonable for a liberal, understood in a classical or a modern sense, to be very skittish about a law like this. Normally, if you want to restrict what happens in schools, you would normally push kind of down toward a more local level and say that local school boards should be deciding these things. And instead, this is the state coming in and mandating this stuff. And it seems to be designed in order to elicit Democrats to object to it. And then the right can point to the kindergarten to third grade thing and say, you mean you're in favor of teaching this to little kids? You're insane. See, look how crazy the left is. And so it's all kind of wrapped up in this, you know, reaction and then reaction to the reaction bit that you get on cable news and in right wing media. And I think it's unfortunate for Democrats to get stuck in that, but it's a very difficult thing to avoid. It sort of requires them to say what I just said, you know, I've been talking for what, like four minutes now and like, and it's a very convoluted thing and trying to like Mm -hmm. oppose this law, but in a way that concedes that yes, you shouldn't be talking to little kids about this, but maybe a state law shouldn't be mandating that kind of restriction on what happens and how big of a problem is this really? Is this all just a kind of trolling operation? So I sort of, as a kind of centrist liberal, kind of look at. this and just want to throw up my hands and just say, I don't know what the hell to say about this other than it's not good in terms of political messaging for Democrats to appear to be saying this is a terrible law because and then well saying that and then kind of the inference that will be teased out by opponents on the right is going to be see, the left actually is in favor of kindergarten teachers teaching about how girls can be boys and boys can be girls and the other stuff that is so fraught and contentious around these issues so as you as you sort of said in your setup it's an expression of mess of where we are politically these days. Right.
0: Okay. Well, Jonathan Rauch, there are a couple of things that as somebody who considers herself pretty culturally conservative, I think are really red flags. One is This approach of, first of all, centralizing power, as Damon referred to, centralizing power in the governor and saying, you know, or in the legislature and saying, we're going to decide what every school does. You know, what about, you know, local school boards, as Damon said? What about parents attending the uh, Board of Education meetings and saying what they want to see? But that takes many evenings um, and and might actually cause people to have to um, do something other than tune into cable. Okay. So that's one thing. Another is this giving parents the right to sue, which is sort of an echo of the Texas abortion law, where it also sort of deputizes all of these citizens to start suing one another over these things, which again, I think is very, very unhelpful. And finally, you have the comments of Christina Pshaw, Governor DeSantis' press secretary, who has gone straight at anti-gay bigotry, and said that people who support this law ought to be uh, considered part of the anti-grooming bill contingent. So that's ugly and awful. Okay, with that set up, let me say that six states have passed LGBTQ plus education bills with different interpretations of what inclusion means. And yes, there are places in America, not Florida, but there are places in America where first graders and kindergartners are being urged to read or be assigned books like Jacob's New Dress or Are You a Boy or Are You a Girl, which is all about a child who doesn't want to say. So it isn't the case that this is pulled out of nowhere, right?
2: Well, yes and no. Uh- First of all, what may be a correction, I went to look at the text of the bill as cited by the governor of Florida. And although the bill, as cited by the governor of Florida, relates to classroom instruction in the manner that Damon described, the bill's preamble describes it as prohibiting classroom discussion. So, to go to your point about lawsuits, it's a miserably drafted bill. It's ambiguous in at least two directions. It is fuel for lawsuits. And that's what's going to happen. Florida is going to spend some money defending this law.
0: Already has.
2: And I think you say it's not coming out of nowhere. Well, yes and no, there are going to be schools that do different things. I personally, as a gay American, have no problem with a school board that wants to teach openness about gender roles to little kids. This is not teaching about how to have sex. They're not showing them how to use condoms, nothing like that. That's their viewpoint. That's okay with me. It may bother you, and it certainly bothers people in Florida. That's okay too, but if they're going to legislate about it, they should do it in good faith. They should do it with a carefully drafted bill. And they should do it in a way that is not being targeted by state officials, like the person you mentioned, in an explicitly bigoted anti-gay way. So no, it's not coming out of nowhere if you're interested in a good faith effort. But this is not a good faith effort. This is one of a lot of efforts around the country to mobilize sentiment on social issues for electoral advantage. Now, maybe that's just politics. Some people may be okay with that. Given where I come from as a gay American born in 1960, you know, there's nothing new here, right? Anita Bryant, think about Colorado, which, you know, passed a state law overturning all gay rights local ordinances. it has been going on forever, but it's still not a welcome thing, and it's not a good thing for our politics, and it's not a humane and decent thing, in my opinion. Though I'd be curious, Mona, if you disagree with much of what you just heard.
0: Uh, no, I don't disagree with that. I agree it's in bad faith. I agree it's very badly drafted and that it is intended to hurt people's feelings and to be a culture war moment. But what I also think is that there are efforts on the other side that are also culture war movements. And let me go to Kathy on this. So Kathy, in some States, there are these efforts to basically teach children from a very young age that they might've been born into the wrong body. And I find that a bridge too far. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. And I do think, by the way, that a lot of this, to the extent that it reflects, you know, genuine concerns as opposed to culture warfare. I think that a lot of it is about uh, the sort of gender identity issues as opposed to gay issues. I agree with that. Yeah, and in fact, you know, it's interesting that there's a number of uh, gay and lesbian activists who have expressed pretty intense concern about the gender identity uh, sort of movement where they say that there's a trend to basically encourage kids who are gay essentially and who are sort of gender atypical to believe that they are actually the opposite gender so it's a very very complicated phenomenon that's happening and actually one of the things i was reading up on the bill the other day because i actually have a column about it in today's uh, newsday one of the actual incidents that apparently prompted the push for this bill was that there was a mother who found out that her 13-year-old child, whose gender has not been disclosed, had started to sort of experiment with a quote-unquote non-binary identity, you know, meaning that you believe you're neither male or female, or maybe both, and that this was being sort of encouraged by the school, that the school teachers... And officials were having discussions with this 13-year-old kid about which bathroom to use, about whether to room with boys or girls on overnight trips. And the mother and the parents were not being informed of any of this. And, you know, I think that uh, there is a legitimate cause for concern there. And that is, by the way, one of the things that the bill deals with. And by the way, I totally agree with all of the criticisms of this bill. You know, it's extremely vague. It's not really clear what sort of things it covers under instruction or discussion. And, of course, this provision allowing parents to sue is really just a disaster because it empowers any parent with a grudge to Mm -hmm. sort of turn into a self-appointed police force and essentially shut down any programming that he or she doesn't like but one of the provisions uh, is that if the child is involved in any sort of activity at the school that could impact his or her, you know, mental health or, you know, critical decisions, I forget the exact language, but the school cannot withhold information about this from the parents unless there is a like, good reason to believe that the child is in an abusive situation where, you know, there, there are good reasons not to share important information with the family. And I can really understand the parental concerns on that. I mean, I think that it is a legitimate concern.
0: Yeah. I thought that of all the aspects of this bill, that was one that I didn't quarrel with. So Bill Galston, some people say, well, look, you're always going to have these culture wars in schools, in public schools. And that's why people can put their kids in private school if they don't like it and so forth what do you think about the law? What do you think it says about our politics? Damon outlined how it's intended to put Democrats in a box. Do you think there's any way out of that box?
4: (laughs) This bill speaks volumes about the condition of our politics today in two important senses. Number one, if you look at the political scene, there is at least for the time being, remarkable consensus on the major features of foreign policy, starting but not ending with Ukraine. And Republicans can criticize the president for being too little or too light or too this or too that. But in fact, if you look at public opinion, there is astonishing unity across party lines, not only on the nature of the conflict, but also on the specifics of how The U.S. ought to respond to it. If you look at economics, that has been scrambled by the rise of Trumpism, which is a kind of big government populism, and the clear lines between government is here to help and that's a good thing and Reagan's famous line about the most fearful words in the English language, that line has been totally blurred. What hasn't been blurred is the culture war. And that has emerged as the principal line of distinction between the two political parties. And so if you want to polarize the two parties, if that's part of your political game plan, then the way to do it is to pick on these sensitive, explosive, emotional cultural issues. That's point number one. Point number two This is Florida, whose governor is Ron DeSantis, who is running very hard for the Republican presidential nomination, and it's not clear to me that he will stand down if Donald Trump stands up. And this reflects DeSantis' judgment as to how best to promote his prospects within today's Republican Party. And one of the things that he's demonstrating is that he is capable of being on constant offense, which is very, very important for the activist wing of the Republican Party. And secondly, that he is unafraid of liberal and elite criticism. And so he's showing the base of the Republican Party exactly what it is looking for. He is promoting himself as a credible alternative to Donald Trump. To get to the final part of your question, is there any way out of this trap? I don't think Democrats gain a lot of ground by turning this into a major point of contestation. If I were asked for political advice from a Democratic candidate, I would simply say, this is a solution in search of a problem. Governor DeSantis has invented this issue in order to uh, curry favor with Republican social conservatives as he gins up his race for president of the United States. I'm not sure I would go much farther than that, although I could be persuaded if I knew more about the actual circumstances. All right.
0: Thank you for that. And we will return after a brief break. Whether you're interested in saving money on your mortgage or you're looking to access some cash, The lender you should look into is American Financing, America's home for home loans, where the process starts with a free, no-obligation mortgage review. So, you can learn about custom loan options that may be a better fit, from lower rates to shorter terms, even paying off high-interest debt. Their salary-based mortgage consultants can do it all, and they never charge upfront or hidden fees. It's possible to save up to $1,000 a month with these guys, plus tens of thousands long-term. Think of the difference that can make. Then, pick up the phone to learn more. If you start soon, you could skip two payments and make close in as little as 10 days. Call 888-991-9788. That's 888-991-9788 or visit americanfinancing.net and tell them mona sent you nmls 182334 nmlsconsumeraccess.org All right. I am so glad that, Bill, you mentioned uh, a solution in search of a problem because one of the things I want to address in our next segment where we're going to go through other sort of disheartening political developments (laughs) is a federal judge ruled this week that the Trump and John Eastman behavior was, quote, a coup in search of a legal theory. He said explicitly that he thought it was more likely than not that Trump committed crimes. So I'm going to go to you, Jonathan Rauch. Uh, you've written extensively about this. Is this a step on the ladder? Is it going to put pressure on uh, Merrick Garland and the Justice Department, although apparently they are investigating this? Tell us what you think
2: about it. Well, Mona, I should say I'm I'm not an expert or someone who follows the ins and outs of legal process in Trump world, all that closely. That said, I was gobsmacked by that ruling because I don't think I remembered when a federal judge signaled so clearly in skywriting and semaphore to the Justice (laughs) Department, I think a crime was probably committed here. I think virtually by definition, that makes it harder if the Justice Department was reluctant to investigate crimes committed in the context of January 6th by the president and his close aides, they're going to have to get much more interested now that they've got a federal judge effectively opening the door and saying, I think this looks criminal to me. I'd be curious how others think. We don't, of course, know what's going on in the Justice Department, and that is a welcome relief from the Trump era when the White House consistently put pressure on the Justice Department tried to use it as an engine for essentially the president's personal agenda. So we don't know. But to me, this makes it a much likelier assumption that there either is or will be a criminal investigation of the January 6th events and possibly indictments and possibly including the president of the United States.
0: Damon, speaking of January 6th, Ginny Thomas was there. And as we know, she exchanged many texts with Mark Meadows, president's chief of staff, cheering on the looniest, craziest nonsense, frightening stuff. You put that together with Trump's lunatic comment this week. Actually, let's just play it. At this moment, here's what he
4: wants Putin to do. As long as Putin now is not exactly a fan of our country, let him explain where did, because Chris Wallace wouldn't let me ask the question, Why did the mayor of Moscow's wife give the Bidens, both of them, three and a half million dollars for That's a lot of money. She gave him three and a half million dollars. So now I would think Putin would know the answer to that. I think he should release it. I think we should know that answer. So totally normal.
0: Former president of the United States calling upon the world's leading war criminal to help him impugn the sitting president of the United States. So the wife of a Supreme Court Justice, you have the former President of the United States, and you have also big story this week in Washington Post about Ted Cruz's role in the attempted coup. And so I'd like you to reflect for a minute on the state of the GOP, where you have a leading senator, a former president, the wife of a Supreme Court justice, all of them engaged in anti-democratic behavior and beliefs.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically, I worry about repeating myself on the podcast, but sometimes when you have a line, you just have to stick to it. (laughs) You know, I certainly agree with everything Jonathan Rauch said about how, uh, you know, a federal judge pointing in the direction of illegality by the former president is a kind of Screaming, signal, sign, a red flag, waved, arrows pointing in the direction of the Justice Department looking into this very closely. If they haven't already, it's going to be very difficult for the Attorney General not to follow through on that. But I am not one of those who is uh, overly relieved by the thought of such a thing because my line on this is that, yes, if crimes were committed, we have to look into it and we have to prosecute them. That's the way the system works. That's what the rule of law means. But our political problems are political problems. And that means that our Trump problem is a political problem. And the evidence for that goes no further than your very set of this question to me is this isn't just like a raving lunatic single guy who broke some laws and we can throw him in jail and then, you know, say, ah, good, solve that problem. We have the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice who was, if anything, you know, right by President Trump's side mm-hmm. in believing before the election, during the election, and immediately after the election in the worst of the stolen election conspiracies that were circulating on the right. And the very act of saying circulating on the right points to the fact that this is not just Donald Trump. This is an entire ecosystem of sludge that was just out there in the air as we had that election that Trump grabbed hold of and then you know amplified as only the president can do with his at the time Twitter account and, and other interviews and then circulating throughout the political system by picking up the phone and calling people. And of course, Ginny Thomas wasn't we, we didn't get a hold of her kind of private diary here. These were text messages that she sent to the chief of staff For the President of the United States in the White House, who's taking time out of his no doubt very busy day to read and respond respectfully to these texts... And then you bring in Ted Cruz and, you know, the a majority of the Republican caucus in the House who eventually voted uh, against certifying the election results. I mean, it is truly astonishing how widespread this problem is. Now, you can raise the question of, well, would that have even happened if Trump wasn't there encouraging it and they're just sort of playing along because they're afraid of being on the receiving end of his abuse and being called weak? And that's a of course all plays a part, but of course it's also imaginable that people would respond and say, you know what, I don't care if I lose my seat because you're insane and I'm not going to destroy and participate in the destruction of American democracy because you scare me. Go to hell. You know, you could imagine a reality in which people responded that way and they didn't. And why didn't they? Well, because a large portion of the Republican electorate is in on the joke as it is. And so the problem is that if you go after Trump for breaking the law in doing these things, you maybe make some progress on one dimension, but in another, you kind of make the problem worse, because how will he defend himself if he ends up indicted and being brought to court? He will defend himself by impugning The rule of law itself, the Justice Department itself, the very laws and the judge who pointed to the illegality and everybody else will simply be thrown in the trash and he will light a match and throw it in the trash can. And if it means that he burns down uh, faith in the rule of law among 30% of the American people, so be it. That's what he will do. Uh, so the line again is, uh, you know, yes, if laws are broken, you gotta, you gotta look into it and you have to prosecute the lawbreaker, but it does not and will not solve our problem and could make our problem worse because our problem is a political problem that can only be addressed politically. In other words, Trump and what he stands for has to lose at the ballot box and badly. And until that happens, I'm afraid we're sort of stuck with it. But he did lose and they just denied it. (laughs) Well, exactly. That's—I mean—that's the problem. And he has to now continue to insist that that's the the narrative. Because if he or the party admits that he actually didn't lose, then he becomes the guy who lost who wants to run again. That doesn't happen. Uh, you know, you can be—you uh, know—Adelaide Stevenson and and be the guy running against the popular president and lose, and then try again. But if you're the sitting president and you lose, you know, Jimmy Carter doesn't run again in 1984. That kind of. thing. Thing doesn't happen. And so he has to continue to ins- insist if he hopes to run again, in addition to protecting his very fragile ego, has to keep pretending that he actually did win and he's running to vindicate himself in that way. So yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> Bill Galston,
0: in uh, I think it was in the 1980s, there was a debate that raged in the pages of Commentary Magazine and few other places about, um, I'm going to refer to the 1930s. That doesn't mean I'm comparing Trump to Hitler, but the discussion was Goldhagen came out with a book about Hitler's willing executioners. And it was about how all of Germany participated in this and that they, you know, didn't need a whole lot of encouragement and, you know, sort of, and it was a sort of whole society indictment. And then there was a reply to this that said, Nope, no Hitler, no Holocaust. I remember that headline Which stressed that no, the Hitler's role was crucial. So, what I would present to you at this moment is the question the importance of the individual. So, we've seen with Volodymyr Zelensky just how critical one individual can be in sort of torquing history in one direction or another. It is really impossible to imagine, I would argue, that the world would have rallied the way it has to Ukraine if. In the first days of the invasion, you know, Zelensky had fled and uh, they had been able to put in a puppet regime and so forth. So individuals do matter for good and for ill. And um, you could make the case, and I'd like to hear you on this, about um, Trump that, uh, yes, he has corrupted almost the entire Republican Party, with a few brave exceptions, But the party without him, while it still may be awfully bad, is not the kind of existential threat to the country that it represents with him. What say you?
4: Political history is a relationship between leaders and followers. And so in this eternal academic debate between structure and agency, translated into plain English, The conditions on the ground on the one hand and the role of individual decisions and individual agents on the other, it's not one or the other, it's both. And successful leaders are people who can divine the desires and hopes of millions and millions of people and hopes and desires that they may not even be aware of themselves and give voice to them. Donald Trump didn't come out of nowhere. He gave voice to opinions, desires, hopes in the Republican base that no one prior to him had been willing or able to articulate and give voice to. And when you look at populist leaders around the world, that is what they do. And Trump was and continues to be extraordinarily successful uh, doing it because he has a kind of visceral understanding about what people like him are thinking and feeling. And I guess I am a little bit less surprised than some other people are that this has happened to the Republican Party because it seems to me to be the confluence of a number of subterranean streams in the Republican Party that have been running for decades. And Trump just found a way to bring them all together into a sea of resentment and then to articulate that resentment. Okay. So
0: I know you agree with Damon that there's no legal solution to the Trump problem and that indicting him is not going to help or it's not going to solve it, but is it going to help? There are presumably some fraction of people who may not be all in for Trump and uh, may like him,
4: but may say, oh, you know, he's under indictment. I don't know. I don't know how to calculate the odds, Mm -hmm. but what I do know is this, a lot of Republicans are looking for a candidate who has what they regard as Trump's virtues without his vices. Yeah. And... If he gets ensnared in any one of the number of actual or possible legal processes to which he is subject, I think the argument in favor of, say, Governor DeSantis, you know, as the winning combination, becomes stronger. So it does weaken Trump as an individual. It does not weaken Trumpism as the defining attribute of the Republican Party.
0: Right. No, I I do agree with that. And uh, yeah, Ron DeSantis is Trump with a different hair color, but he is also Trump without the crazy. So I don't know.
4: I've clearly triggered a storm of disagreement.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let me go to Kathy first. And Kathy, go ahead and respond to that. I was going to ask you about something more lighthearted, but please do respond.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, I just want to say, you know, I totally understand the um, point where, you know, neutralizing Trump, so to speak, is not going to neutralize the problem of Trumpism. But honestly, I do think that if an indictment meant that Trump was extremely unlikely to run again, and I do think that that would be the effect I think that would be a positive because I think, you know, Trumpism is a problem, yes, but I think Trump as an individual is so toxic that just to remove him from the field, I think, would definitely improve things. So that's my two cents.
0: Yeah. Okay. And uh, John.
2: I'm the guy who, I think, a bit over a year ago, wrote in Lawfare that Biden should pardon Trump preemptively. To avoid the kind of circus that we would see if Trump were brought up on federal charges, Uh, it would be a politicized trial. Trump, of course, would become a martyr in the eyes of millions of Americans. The whole thing would be destructive. Let the states deal with it. Let Georgia and New York State deal with it. To go back to where we started, Mona, I think an effect of a federal judge saying this looks like a crime, and not just any crime, but a conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States rules out both the kind of leniency that I once prescribed, the Biden administration does not have the luxury anymore of making a political call. Mm. On this issue of this importance with a federal judge saying, I think this law may have been broken, they're just going to have to rule on the merits of the law and let the chips fall where they may. Interesting.
0: Okay, really quick, Kathy, I will just get your reaction. So um, Madison Cawthorn. (laughs) Truly one of the most reprehensible, disgusting people ever to have held public office in America, encouraged the insurrection, was accused credibly of all kinds of sexual misconduct, has been encouraging yet another January 6th in his speeches. Oh, and his white supremacy, you know, he's flirted with all that. But apparently, he's found the one thing you cannot say without getting rebuked by Republicans. And this week, he said that yes, the kinds of things that go on in Washington, D.C., include orgies and cocaine use. And finally, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy has taken him to task, and Tom Tillis has said he won't, uh, he'll, he'll endorse his challenger. <laughs> so now we know, Kathy.
3: Yeah, yeah, that is, <laughs> that is hilarious. But it's funny how, like, the laughter starts the moment you say Madison Corthorne, Like, his name <laughs> is the punchline. You don't That's even true. need to say anything else. And don't forget that he also called Zelensky a thug. Remember that? And he said that, you know, he's a horrible person who wants to sell out Ukraine to the globalists or something like that. Oh, no. He said that Ukraine was endorsing all these woke policies. Right, right. Woke policies. (laughs) Right, right, right. God. Yeah. All those woke neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Right. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. They
4: really have to get (laughs) their story straight. (laughs) I know the constitution blesses 25 year olds for the house of representatives But is it really such a great idea? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Okay.
0: Well, let's take a quick break and turn to our next topic. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show, which features in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds like Charles Koch and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions, covering everything from conventional problems like leaving a dream job, to doozies like helping someone escape an abusive relationship. You can also hear the latest news about Russia, featuring a heavy-hitting interview with Garry Kasparov about his experience with an authoritarian regime, and that's just the beginning. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nazi, G-E-R, In Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. I am going to start now with Kathy. Actually, Biden's approval rating is at 40.9 according to the RCP average, which is um, close to Trump territory. And, you know, that's another commentary on our politics. I mean, good God. But the fact that equal numbers of people would disapprove of these two people, but that's where we are. So, Respond to this, Kathy. Here's the thesis. Biden is in so much trouble because the Democrats have been so busy demonizing Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema that they've neglected to pursue policies that move them more to the middle. And by the way, they have also neglected to hang people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn, and Paul Gosar around Republican necks.
3: I think there's something to be said for that. There are a lot of dimensions here. I think part of it is that we're looking at inflation, we're looking at, you know, rising gas prices and I do worry that the situation in Ukraine, where I completely support what Biden is doing, is going to make things worse if, you know, Republicans can suggest that look, you know, this is why we're getting, you know, even higher gas prices now. So, I think that part of it is a response to Things that are actually happening on the ground, but yeah, you know, leave it to the Democrats to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. You know, it's. Uh, I think they're really, really bad at PR. I do agree that a move to the center is definitely the thing to do. Of course, you know, maybe that's just my own political biases speaking. But I think it's interesting that while Biden's policies have been pretty centrist, the Democrats really have not sort of kept up with that rhetoric was. And I think the Democrats really do need to kind of harness uh, their message and occupy the center more effectively. And yeah, I think they definitely do need to hang these extremists around the neck of the Republican Party.
0: Jonathan Rauch, the argument goes that Biden has neglected to use the bully pulpit that, you know, of course, you know, Trump was in our faces all the time when he was president and thank God that's no longer the case. But Biden has gone arguably too far in the other direction. Voters don't hear from him. They don't know his, his voice, his, his message. And so instead, the message of what the Democrats are has either been framed by Republicans or by the loudest voices on Twitter and good attention-getters like AOC, they are the progressive left and they are not where the bulk of Democrats are.
2: Well, are we talking about style or, or substance? Both. The uh, You remember Joe Biden was the guy in, was it the 2008 presidential run when Biden complained in one of the presidential debates? He wasn't getting much time. And he said, what do I have to do up here? Light myself on fire? <laughs> This has never been a guy who has been particularly good at or even interested in dominating the public debate. He's very much a legislator. I get the White House video feeds on YouTube, and he actually talks a lot. He gives a lot of speeches. He's out there every day, popping up here or there with a comment or a statement. So he's trying to break through, but he is just not that combustible, interesting, charismatic a figure. I'm not sure that's his fault. I like the fact that a president sticks to his knitting and does a really good job in a crisis, which is I think what's happening now. And I will confess, maybe Bill can enlighten this, but I will confess to being puzzled by the extent of his disapproval ratings right now, because I don't think either the messaging or the substance warrants the low standing.
0: Go for it, Bill Galston. What do you make of this?
2: Uh, I can give you
4: a one word answer. Inflation. The surveys that I've been reviewing and analyzing recently show a meteoric rise in inflation status as the dominant issue in American politics today. And not only does it wipe out people's awareness of other dimensions of economic progress, which have been considerable, uh, but it also casts a baleful shadow over everything else that the president and his administration are doing. They let this issue get away from them. They're not the only ones, the Fed let this issue, which is much more central to its mission than it is to the executive branch, get out of control. And here we are. And I don't think that the president's approval ratings are going to recover significantly Until the American people feel that inflation has begun to slow perceptibly. And one evidence or piece of evidence for that is that the American people are by and large very supportive of his policy in Ukraine and give him pretty high marks across party lines, which doesn't happen very often these days, and it hasn't made any difference whatsoever. Damon. So Rui Tuchera, I think, has a different
0: view from Bill's. He had a piece on the liberal patriot this week saying, you know, Democrats need to run, not walk to the center or something along those lines. And he points out polling that shows that Republicans are preferred on a number of issues, including not just inflation, but crime and the border and other things. And he cites this NBC News poll, and I'll just read some of it. This was asking people about how they would rate a candidate based on certain attributes, and it was asking all voters. And it goes from total most likely, starting there, a candidate who supports funding the police and providing them the resources and training they need to protect our communities. 75% would be more likely to vote for such a candidate. A candidate who supports expanding domestic oil and natural gas production to keep our gasoline and energy prices lower, 69% approval. A candidate who supports the bipartisan infrastructure legislation that Congress passed last week, 63%. Candidate who supports Biden's proposal to lower costs for healthcare and prescription drugs, and so on. By the way, also majority support for upholding Roe v. Wade, not overturning it, 56%. But those numbers would tend to suggest that the Democrats have an avenue open to them of um, appealing to voters on matters like that. What do you think? Or does inflation kill everything?
1: Well, uh, I think as everyone has noted, I mean, it's a complex matrix of things. I mean, Biden's approval rating started falling off a cliff with the really kind of bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan last August. You can point to almost to the day, the moment at which he went underwater, meaning his disapproval rating went higher than his approval rating. It's almost to the minute when uh, the Taliban took over Afghanistan on like uh, August 15th or 16th. Now, that doesn't mean that all of this is about that, but that was a moment at which it first seemed like I think a lot of Americans thought, huh, maybe these people don't know what they're doing. And it's like he's never really recovered from that. Once we got past that, by, say, mid-September, you started to see inflation going up, the White House sort of downplaying that for quite a while. You also had the kind of interminable, now it's over, sort of. But, you know, uh, it, it seemed at the time pretty interminable. It went on for a couple months' debate about machinations inside the beltway about the build back better bill and how big it would be and would it pass or not? And Joe Manchin being evil. And it just, this went on for a long time and that didn't help. And now, yeah, I mean, you have inflation as a festering problem in the background that has everyone, I think, very grumpy, and it's very, very concrete. I mean, I, I'm lucky enough that it doesn't very greatly impact my life, but it used to cost me about 160 bucks to go to the store every week for groceries, and now it costs me over $200 to get groceries every week. You know, that's a really big jump for six months. And for people who are living on a tight budget, this can be a very significant hardship. And I empathize with the White House because, as Bill noted, this is the Fed's purview and the most effective thing, as far as our recent experience shows, the Fed can do is to send the country into a deep recession to fix it, which is no solution <laughs> to Biden's problem. So, you know, what, uh, what you mentioned about the different policies, yes, I think ideally Biden would have from the beginning pitched toward the center in the awareness as someone who comes out of the Senate and very much aware of the rules and how things get done in Congress could have said, look, we have the narrowest possible margin in the Senate and an extremely narrow one in the House. There's no way we're getting anything done here unless we work with maybe the moderate 10 to 20 percent of Congress on the Republican side to get things done. But The party is a broad one, and you have restive progressives who have their own desires, their own agenda, and don't want to go for that kind of a strategy. And so what you end up with is, I think, in a lot of ways, a a kind of impossible threading of the needle for the administration. You go, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. If he had come out and proposed, say, just the infrastructure bill – Part of the big legislative package that did end up getting passed with some Republican support. If that was kind of the big thing, it's possible it never would have passed in the first place because the progressives would have bolted on the left. The only reason they stayed on board is because Biden convinced them that if they voted with it, along with the Republicans who were willing to do so, that they would be back within a month or so and pass what they wanted, which was the social spending and the Build Back Better bill. That ended up not happening because in the end, Manchin wasn't willing to go along with it. And that's really all it took. We're dealing with a polarized moment and a government that is extremely narrow. There's no room for error. And with the electorate as polarized as it is, the opportunities for error are scattered around on the ground everywhere you step.
4: Okay, Bill, you wanted to add something? Just very simply, Mona, uh, you read off from the NBC poll a list of five things that arguably would make a leader more popular,
0: or a candidate for Congress,
4: and Biden checks the box on four out of the five. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the only and he stood up in front of the entire country in his State of the Union and said, "Don't defund the police, fund them."
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Right, and it didn't make a damned bit of difference, as you know because you've written about it. I'm the co-author. Of one of the longest <laughs> arguments in favor of Democrats moving back towards the center in recent memory. Yep. But if you're asking me why isn't Biden doing better in the public opinion polls, uh then I will stand my my answer as of now. If you're asking me why he wasn't doing better nine months ago, then Damon is absolutely right. But this is now, and it is inflation that is the biggest millstone around his neck.
0: Okay. I am going to beg to differ. I'm going to say, I mean, I do of course agree about inflation. Inflation is a president killer and it has been in our history and it is very, very dangerous for presidents. No question. But I think it's not just that. I do think that Biden has not been able to grab a commanding moment since his inauguration. I was hoping that maybe he would seize the moment when we had these fantastic vaccines for this worldwide plague, that he would lead the world in saying, you know, we in the United States with our allies, together with our allies, are going to vaccinate the world. It would have been a win substantively. It would have been good for us. It would have been Mm -hmm. good for the world. It would have shown him in a leadership posture, leading the world, leading this country, and doing something the likes of which nobody had seen since the Marshall Plan. He didn't seize that moment. He also, in the wake of Ukraine, which I agree with Jonathan and you and others, that he has handled it pretty well, but it is a moment where if he would think a little bigger and if he would play the role of leader better, he could take this moment to pivot and say, you know what, we have to get really serious about alternative energy. For now, we're going to crank up fossil fuels because we have to starve Russia of money and other bad actors by the way but you know we're going to make a huge pivot to nuclear and geothermal and other kinds of things and I'm going to lead the way but he seems more reactive he seems more managing his coalition and and so I think that's actually also part of why his approval ratings are not higher
4: well I sure wish he would do what you're suggesting Mona and if he does, and when he does, we'll see whether you're right about his approval ratings. But on the overall desirable direction of his presidency, we have no disagreement whatsoever.
2: Okay. Jonathan Rauch? I agree with what you and Bill are saying on the substance. But Joe Biden's been around for a long time. He's a, a very well known quantity in Washington. Most of us have encountered him. And I think of him as a WYSIWYG president, WYSIWYG being coder for what you see is what you get. Um, he is not capable. He just doesn't have it in his temperament and his skill set to be a Churchillian or Reagan-esque or Kennedy-esque kind of figure. He never has. And so it's going to be up to his party to frame a message, to rally behind him, uh, and to solve these problems and then put him before the public. But wishful thinking about his being a different kind of person he is will not get us there.
3: Okay. Kathy Young. I don't think that Biden has the charisma, really, to present the message himself You know the way that you would like him to and the way that I would like him to. But I do think that the Democrats as a group just really need to do a better job of amplifying that message. Like even with don't defund the police, fund the police. Yeah, that was a good message. But I think that the Democrats again, you know, as a kind of collective entity, really, really need to do more to amplify that and to kind of bring that to the public.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's not enough to say it at the State of the Union. Yeah, completely agree. If it's worth saying once in politics, it's worth saying a 1000 times.
3: And I haven't really heard this amplified a lot. And I think no. some of it may have to do with divisions among the Democrats themselves, because, you know, there is a fairly large kind of progressive contingent that thinks it's kind of uncool to uh, talk about funding the police. Right, right, right. No, that's a, that's a good point.
0: Okay. Highlight or lowlight this week. Let's start with you, Bill Galston.
4: Well, my highlight is an unexpected sneak preview. I walked into my office, and there in my mailbox was a thick tome, an advanced copy of a book by a colleague of mine named James Kirchick, who became well known for some extremely thoughtful essays bundled into a book on the future of Europe. He's gay, and he has written a book called Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. It's 665 pages long with 120 pages of notes in addition. And I think it's going to astonish the country. And so stay tuned.
0: Wow, can't wait.
2: <laughs> All right. Jonathan Rouch I'm tempted to just repeat Bill's highlight. because Jamie Kirchick's new book is, I think, a masterpiece. Um, Wow. But I'm going to go with the highlight that's been the highlight, actually, of the last month. And it just dwarfs everything else for me, Mona. I wish I could be more creative, but it's the extraordinary spirit being shown by the Ukrainian people. And I think the A to A-plus performance of the Biden administration in handling that crisis I'm tempted as a low light to pick Biden's one big mistake since the crisis began. At least I think it was a mistake, which was sounding like demand for regime change in Russia. But other than that, I think this is the most nimble and adroit performance in a foreign policy crisis we have seen since 30 years ago and the Gulf War. My low light would be in the state of Utah, goes back to our earlier conversation, the legislature there passed a bill that bans transgender students from participating in sports. That's male to female transgender students. Governor Cox, a conservative, vetoed the bill, saying it's unnecessary, it causes litigation and all those other things. The state legislature is on track to override the veto. The actual number of transgender athletes in Utah is four. The actual number of male to female transgender athletes is one. This is not what our country and our legislatures should be busying themselves with.
0: And if I could just add, uh, Governor Cox made a statement saying, look, you know, we were working behind the scenes on a compromise that would, you know, sort of smooth over this issue and and make everybody happy. And he asked the Republican legislature to please hold off while they worked out some sort of compromise, but no, they wanted to use the hammer.
3: Okay. Kathy Young. Well, I, uh, in terms of highlights, I really just have to agree with, uh, with what John said. I mean, I, I am so awed by The bravery of the Ukrainian people and just the amazing spirit of uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, I can't think of any other highlight right now. The low light really has to be Trump's uh, comments about getting Putin to provide dirt on Joe Biden and the Biden family. I mean, this is like a replay of, you know, Russia, if you're listening. Uh, about Hillary Clinton's emails and I remember that at the time a lot of people were saying, oh you know come on, he was just joking you know that's just Trump you know being Trump and uh, oh. and of course he didn't seriously mean it well I mean are we going to say that he doesn't mean it now because he certainly doesn't sound to me like he was kidding and I mean you know to do this in the middle of, Putin's war in Ukraine when, you know, he is not just America's adversary, but like the world's number one war criminal right now. And, you know, and not only that, but he actually said in, in these same comments, remember, he started with, well, you know, given that Vladimir Putin is not a great fan of our country right now. So what? he's actually saying that, you know, the reason that Putin would want to do this is that he wants to hurt America Right. and I'm going to ask him to do it for that. Reason. I mean, this is just mind-boggling, you know. And as
0: <laughs> it is, and frankly, in another time and place, I, I mean, it would just be so obvious to everyone that this man is mentally unbalanced. Yeah, I mean, he does not have the basic moral compass of just your ordinary manager of the supermarket. You know, I mean, he just doesn't. There's something wrong with him, deeply, you know, savagely wrong. And yet he has millions of slavish followers. It yeah, is this just is like you know, committing
3: treason in broad, daylight. In broad you know, daylight, broadcasting it to the world. It's, yeah. it's yeah. just mind boggling.
0: Yeah, agreed, agreed. Okay, Damon Linker.
1: Um Well, I have a pair of highlights uh, today, and they're from two authors I've highlighted before. They're the kind of people I like thinking with, and they both contributed interesting things this week. They both harken back to the 1990s when there were kind of two big think pieces books published that sort of defined debates throughout the decade. The first was Francis Fukuyama's uh, great book, The End of History and the Last Man, which posited in a nutshell that the the great ideological debates of uh, our time had been resolved in favor of liberal democracy, which meant that history in, in that ideological sense had come to a terminus with the triumph of the liberal West in the Cold War, and that, yes, things would obviously keep happening, but the big question about what the best form of government would be had been settled, and that was kind of the end of that. Then about uh, five years later, we got a different proposal from political scientist Sam Huntington, who uh, wrote a book. Titled The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order. Uh, And that posited something very different that namely, the world actually was not all coming together, but rather in the process of starting to break apart into conflictual areas defined broadly as civilizations. So, what you would end up seeing are big fights between the Western Christian and post Christian Europe and the United States on one side against Eastern Orthodox Russia. And then you'd have the Muslim Middle East, and you'd have uh, an Asian bloc, and Latin America would be a separate one, and that the fissures between these different areas of the world would be what would define international relations uh, going forward. So this week we had... Ross Douthat at the New York Times wrote a column titled, Yes, There Is a Clash of Civilizations. So he's taking up the cause of the Huntington thesis against critics who, since the uh, Ukraine-Russia war began, have been saying that this shows Huntington was wrong because you have kind of the resurgence of of liberal democracy, and so maybe that shows Fukuyama was right after all, and Ross pushes back against that to say, no, actually, the cleavages, the differences you're seeing among different regions of the world sort of track with what Huntington predicted, so he's vindicated. On the very same day that this column appeared, by doubt that we also had a substack post from Matt Iglesias on his Slow Boring site. His piece is titled, Ukraine and the End of History, or Perhaps It's a Clash of Civilizations." So it's almost as if they planned this, but I think it was just fortuitous. And uh, Iglesias takes a different view. He actually looks a little bit more closely at some different regions of the world and shows that actually things are not breaking apart along the lines that Huntington predicted. This isn't about civilizations. This is actually about small and weak countries trying to ally with more powerful ones and also poor countries trying to get richer. So that looks a lot more like the Fukuyama argument. So I leave it to listeners to read both pieces. They're both smart and provocative and can really, I think, advance thinking on uh, this important issue that goes all the way back to the 90s.
0: All right. Well, I would like to draw attention to something that was uh, done by Maryland this week, which is under the leadership of Larry Hogan, one of the good republicans in the world. They've changed their rules about who can work in the Maryland government. And they have made it possible for people without a college degree to apply for and be considered for a bunch of white collar positions that previously had required a college degree. And they were, you know, they were very explicit. They said, "Look, if you want to perform surgery or design a bridge, obviously you need to have the credential. But for a lot of positions, office managers and IT people and all kinds of other jobs, a college degree is nice, but it's not necessary. So they are looking at alternative certifications, that is ways that people can demonstrate that they have the ability to do the job. And I think that's just dandy. So I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank our producer Katie Cooper and our sound engineer this week was Joe Armstrong and I would like to thank our guests Jonathan Rauch and Kathy Young for sitting in and all of you for listening we will return next week as every week